Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for joining me today. I hope your day's been going well. I'm excited about uh, this show. We're going to start with David Wheaton in just a minute, and then I'm going to invite onto the program Andrew Davis. He's written a book called The Glory Now Revealed, What We Will Discover About God in Heaven. That was going to be quite interesting. And then our Old Testament series continues in the second hour with Dr. Rebecca Ree. We're going to discuss Tamar today. That's all ahead, so I'm looking forward to it. I want to get back into our study of Exodus with David. He uh, has been taking us on this journey. We call it the Epic Exodus Displays, the Awesome God. We're going through the book of Exodus, so get your Bibles open. David Wheaton, of course, is the host of The Christian Worldview. You can go to thechristianworldview.org to learn about David and his program and his writing. And we're always glad to have him on the show. David, welcome. Good to be with you today, Bill. Thanks. So I've got a sports question to get things started. Are you okay with that? Yes, go for uh, it. Ryan, who produces a show here, wants to, you to answer this question for him. What do you think is more impressive, Rafael Nadal coming back from an injury, playing one of the hottest players in the world, being down two sets and winning, or Tom Brady winning a Super Bowl at age 44? <laughs> wow. <laughs> that is that that is a tough and maybe unanswerable <laughs> question. Yeah. Um, wow. You know, they're they're just both the greatest of all time now. So how how do you even compare that? I mean, seven Super Bowls is never been done, may never be done again. Right. Although the 21 majors now by Nadal is just it's just beyond what I can see happening in the next 50 years by anyone. But you never know. Records are, I guess, made to be broken. But I I don't think I can pick which one's greater, but they're both just amazing. If you think about if you've live, you know, half a century like I have and like you have, Bill. I mean, these kind of things just don't happen in sports, so it's really amazing to watch. Did Wasn't Nadal on crutches just last year? I think he may have been. He's had a lot of injuries with yeah. his knee. It sounds like even his foot now. Yeah. Uh, of course, he went to the Australian Open. He beat Med- Medvedev in the final, who won the Austro- who won the U.S. Open, right. beat Djokovic. If you remember that, yes. Djokovic was going for his 21st major. So he was trying to beat these two guys who were both trying to get the record for Grand Slam titles, almost beat Nadal, almost did twice in a row. But, uh, you know, Nadal, these, these guys are just at an amazing level, the level of determination and just the ability. I mean, they have, they don't just, it's not just kind of come and go. They're, they do it year after year after year, mm-hmm. which is truly the sign of a, a great champion. Yeah. I mean, but to be down two sets yeah. against uh, one of the hottest players and to yeah. come back, pretty impressive. Very impressive. Yeah. So let's move on to Exodus because I can't wait to get back to our study. Um, I think let's maybe brush up on the most important points from the last time we discussed. I think we were on the Ten Commandments. We were in, in the chapter 19 of Exodus is the setup chapter to one of the most important chapters in the Bible in Exodus chapter 20. If for people listening, you know, you got to know where the Ten Commandments are. This is the basis for uh, just who God is, His holiness, His standard for humanity. It's the basis for our legislative and justice system in America. 
You know, the Ten Commandments are posted around in, in significant buildings in our country. They, they used to be in schools. Unfortunately, they're not anymore. It would be a good thing if they were. But this is a very important part of Scripture. And, and, and the Israelites here, Bill, are only three months into their journey, into their exodus, their exit from Israel, going to the Promised Land. They were enslaved. But they're going to be now. They've arrived at a place called Mount Sinai, is where— uh, Moses had just less, probably less than a year earlier, had gone and received from God the commission to go back to Egypt and lead the people out of Egypt. They're going to be at Mount Sinai for 11 months, and this is where God is going to give them the law. And, and the Ten Commandments is sort of a shortened summary of God's moral law. And God is going to, again, do give Israel a test of obedience. This is how he always tests us. He tests us with Will we have faith in what he has said? And so he says in Exodus 19, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then, so if-then statement, then you will shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So he's saying to them, trust and obey me, and you will be blessed. And this is the same thing God says to us today. And this is not a health, wealth, and prosperity message, just obey, you're going to be blessed you know, monetarily, financially, health, wealth, and everything else. Not saying that at all. Mm -hmm. It's saying, if you trust and obey me, you will be blessed. Even when things don't go well for you, I will be your God. God will walk with us through the hardest challenges of life, and we'll have the, the peace and contentment and the perspective of being right with God and having his wisdom to go through the hard uh, aspects of life, even if those—that doesn't mean health, wealth, and prosperity. So this is the universal test he's giving to the nation of Israel, and he gives that in chapter 20 in the Ten Commandments. Mm. I, and I love that opening sentence of Exodus 20 as really the key to the Ten Commandments. It, it is. It's sort of—it's easy to skip over that, the opening sentence, which is this, of Exodus 20, verse 1 and 2. Then God spoke all these words. He's speaking to Moses on the mountain of Mount Sinai. He says, I am the Lord your God, who brought—and here's who I am—who brought you up, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And this is really the basis for what God is going to say next when he gives the Ten Commandments. In other words, he reminds them who he is and what he has done for them. I mean, I am your creator. I am the king of the universe who is worthy to make these laws. I am the one who rescued, rescued you. In other words, you should, you're not only compelled to obey me, you should want to obey me because I'm the king of the universe and rescued you from the land of Egypt. And by the way, just as the New Testament says, God's commandments, the law, this is not, these are not, his commandments are not burdensome, the Bible says. They are a, re a reflection of who he is, his perfection, and they are actually for our good. Mm. Bill, if we could keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, we would have, as that one book said, your best life now. <laughs> you could perfectly keep yeah. the Ten Commandments. You'd be the happiest person because you'd be living in close uh, close communion and, and as much like Christ as is possible. Think about Jesus Christ. He kept the Ten Commandments perfectly, and he was the most content and satisfied man who ever lived because he was in perfect union with God. Mm. Boy, if you say to an atheist, if you follow and obey the Ten Commandments, you will have a wonderful life. That's exactly true. We, we will have a wonderful life, and I think sometimes we think it's a bunch of rules and so forth. Yeah, there are do's and don'ts in the Ten Commandments, mm. but again, 
his commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are for our good when yes. we keep them, and they're for God's glory when we do as well. Right. All right, let's talk about some of the key points of maybe just the first three commandments. Yeah, we went over this a little bit last time, but I think there's a couple things that, that bear repeating. You know, I the agree. First three, the first three commandments are you shall have—and and by the way, I'd recommend that everyone listening today memorize the Ten Commandments, at least in their shortened form. You know, you shall have no other gods before me, you shall not make any idols, more, in, in, at least in that form, because this is a reminder of who God is and what He expects from us. And so memorizing these would be a really good exercise. But anyway, the first three are— you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. And number three is you shall not take the, the name of the Lord your God in vain. And these commandments, the first four actually, describe our vertical relationship with God, us to God. And then the next six, starting with commandment number five, it determine or establish our horizontal relationship with other people. But this first commandment, is you shall have no other gods before me. Another god is basically anything or anything, anyone or anything that we worship or treasure or obey or follow more than the true God. And this, this other god could be ourselves. We could put ourselves on our own throne of our life. It could be our own serving our own, worshiping our own personal satisfaction or financial security. It could even be family, P putting your family, worshiping your family above the one and only true God. This one commandment, I think, could be summarized by saying that God shall be the top, top, top priority in your life. And, and God created us all to be worshipers. We are going to worship something. We are going to either going to worship the true God, or we will find another God to worship. And again, that may be ourselves, our own pleasures, or our own made-up God, or a false religion. But this is ultimately the one commandment, Bill, that when we violate this commandment, it leads to everything else falling apart. And this is really the problem in our country or any country today or the world today is that the vast majority of mankind has put other gods before the true God. Mm -hmm. And David, even your comment about loving something or putting something above God, even your family, which is in, an entirely good thing. Yes. I think Augustine talks about disordered loves it's not that you love bad things, but sometimes you love good things too much. You elevate them even above God. Right. Well, what's the great commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is the summary mm -hmm. of, of the Ten Commandments. So that, that first half of there, you shall love the Lord your God. We need to have a love for Him, a reverence for Him. Actually, the Bible talks about fear and love of God. A fear of God is like a deep reverence for God that— you would never want to do anything that alienates you or causes God to be offended by your thoughts, words, or, or deeds. And the love of God is you, you're concerned most of all for God and His own glory. That, that's when you truly love someone else, you're concerned for their own good. And so that's kind of the, the, the footing that we need to have when we approach this first commandment. And the second commandment is a little bit like it, but different. You shall not make for yourself an idol. And there's lots of qualifications or any likeness of what is in heaven above. There's about a paragraph of what an idol is. And this is really, if I could use sort of a vernacular expression here, this is the don't be dumb commandment. <laughs> it, it, it says in Isaiah 44, if you read starting in verse 17 through the end of the chapter, it says he, he the person who makes an idol, falls down before an idol and worships it he also prays to it and says, deliver me, for you are my God. 
they do not know, nor do they understand the person who does this. And you know, one translation is, you know, don't don't be stupid, don't don't be a dumb person to make something and then fall down and worship it. You know, that's just dumb. And so, but this was the case. It was so common back in that time that idols were made out of wood or stone, and people would go to a, a high hill and worship these idols. But lest we think they were a lesser form of mankind and we're smarter today, we do the same thing today. We have our own idols today. Maybe it's a certain kind of house or neighborhood that we want to live in. It's a certain kind of car that we have to have and or clothes that we wear, a certain job that we want to have, a position we want to attain, how many likes we get or follows we get on social media. These can become idols within our heart today. And this, this second commandment says God is a—this is a surprising word to to. to to associate with God, but it says it right here. God is a jealous God, and he deserves all our worship, and he doesn't want any of our worship to go for some other kind of man-made God. Mm -hmm. That's a dead God. That's a fake God that can't do anything for you. I mean, can you imagine what God thinks when we worship a false God? I mean, yeah. he's mm. here, I created you, I've done everything for you, and you make some God or some worship something else that is totally irrelevant and fake. So this is a very serious uh, second commandment as well. Yeah. All right, David, I'm going to clear some space for you to answer my next question, which is all about the Sabbath. Are we still to keep the Sabbath holy? But I'm going to create some space by taking a little break. So when we come back, you've got all this time to answer that question. David Wheaton is my guest. He is the host of The Christian Worldview. You can go to thechristianworldview.com or .org. Either way, we'll get you there. We'll be right back. ChristianWorldview.org. You can head over there and check out David's podcast and his writing, and we're always glad to have him on. We're talking about the epic Exodus and how it displays the awesome God. We are in Exodus chapter 20, and right before break, David, I wanted to tease out that uh, the question of, are we still to keep the Sabbath today? And I wanted to leave you lots of room for, for yeah. you to answer, so go ahead. Yeah, this is a good and this is a common question because it's the only one of the Ten Commandments that is not repeated in some form in the New Testament. And so I'll, I'll just, there's different there's different positions on this. I'll give you what I understand the Bible to teach about keeping the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath is Saturday. It was the day that God rested from creating the universe in six days. So there was six days of creation, and on Saturday— he rested. And it wasn't because he needed the rest. He works every day to uphold the universe, but he modeled it for us that we should rest one day per week to worship God. So the seventh day is a reminder that God created the heavens and the earth, and it's for, it was made, God made the Sabbath for man, okay, for us. So it's, it's a good thing. Now, society completely rejects us today. Sunday is now called fun day, right? And we work, doesn't matter, we work whenever. But when we look at the New Testament, we look at the model of the, the early believers and, and of Christ himself. Christ kept the Sabbath, but after his death and resurrection, the New Testament Christians, when the church started, they weren't Sabbath keepers. In other words, they didn't, they didn't keep the Sabbath and rest on, on Saturday uh, as the Jews of the past had done. They actually had a new day, Sunday, the first day of the week, 
that they gathered together to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord, and we still do that as Christians today. So I guess the answer to your question is, I don't understand the Bible to teach that we must keep Saturday as a Sabbath, as the Old Testament Jews did today, but at the same point, we are commanded to one day a week, as in the model of the apostles did, to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as a church. We should gather together on a Sunday as a Lord's Day and dedicate that day to really worshiping the Lord and resting, by the way. Mm-hmm. By the way, this is a good thing to do. This isn't just something, oh boy, I got to you know, take today off. No, this is for our benefit when we do it. So I, I don't know if that exactly answered the question. I hope that brings some clarity to it. It's sort of, no, I don't think we're called to keep the Sabbath as they did back in the Old Testament. But yes, the Sunday is a day to the Lord, and we should not forsake that day of assembling together in church. And we should really devote one day a week. Every day should be a day to the Lord. Right. But especially on Sunday, I think, is a day that we commonly modeled after the New Testament church when it started with the apostles, when they got together to worship God. Yeah, and like resting on Sunday, that doesn't conflict with weekday napping, does it? No, not at all. That's okay, good, good, too. What a relief. All right. Yes. Let's jump into the fifth through the ninth commandments. And, and I want to ask you, David, if these commandments would be the what we would consider, a, a, say, the basis for a, a secure society today. Absolutely. That, that, that's such a good point, Bill, because that's really what the Ten Commandments do. They not only show the holiness of God and the standard of God, but when kept, they form the basis for who God is and how to worship Him and treating His name with respect and keeping the Sabbath. And, and then these next six commandments, honor your father and mother, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, not lie. And number, the last one, number 10, is you should not covet what your neighbor has. If, if a society does these things, and we'll say specifically, let's just say number five, honor your father and mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. In other words, this simple commandment that children are to obey and honor their parents, it's notable that honoring your father and mother is at the top of the list of the, of the, second, of the, of the latter half, the second mm-hmm. six. It presupposes, first of all, that marriage is to be between one man and one woman, right there. Isn't that interesting, which is rejected by society today? True. It's also, I think, probably the the first, maybe the top priority for a stable society. In other words, if there are broken homes and there are rebellious children, society falls apart. You can just look at our society today and see that as absolutely the truth. And there are great consequences of this when there are no moms and no dads and they're not raising kids in the discipline and instruction of the Lord's and children aren't obeying and honoring their parents. Society falls apart. And who has to step in? Government has to step in. And so this this commandment, by the way, Bill, listeners may be surprised at this, but for children who are egregiously rebellious against their parents, the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament actually prescribes capital punishment for children who were unrepentantly rebellious. Now, I don't know how much that took place, but it was considered to be so serious for a society to be stable and secure of children needing to honor and obey their parents. Wow. And as people are learning the Ten Commandments and they come across, you shall not murder, a lot of people give themselves a pass on that one, and they say, well, I never murdered anybody. Right. And I think as we start to understand what it means, we realize that we can do that in our mind. We can murder somebody's character. We can do that kind of 
what the Bible would say is you have committed murder. Yeah. You look at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus's most well-known sermon in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And in the in that um, sermon, he actually answers the question about, you know, do we still have to keep the, the Ten Commandments, right? He, mm-hmm. he, he says there, I'm going to flip up and try to find it real quick. He says, um, do you think, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. Like, I didn't come to, like, you know, not do what was said in the Old Testament. I did not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke, the smallest stroke of a pen shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. And he goes on with a warning. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them the law shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And so, and then in the rest of that sermon, Christ takes it from the external action, as you just mentioned, about not murdering or mm-hmm. not committing adultery. He says, if you hate your brother, you it's like you've committed murder. God considers that murder in your heart because hatred leads to anger and bitterness and leads to murder. And same thing with committing adultery. It's not just the act of uh, sexual intercourse uh, with someone who's not your spouse. Uh, it is the, he said, if anyone who lusts after a woman to commit to commit adultery with her has committed adultery with her in his heart. I mean, he takes it from just the action, well, I've never done that, to all of a sudden, if you have lusted in your heart for someone who's not your wife or husband, or if you've hated someone in your heart, well, you have committed murder. You have mm-hmm. committed adultery, and you are guilty before God. And so the obvious response to that is, well, <laughs> well, then we've all broken the Ten Commandments. And the, act- and the answer is, that's absolutely the point of the Ten Commandments. The Bible says it's a schoolmaster that leads us to Christ. In other words, none of us can keep God's standard. We should strive to, but also realize we can never keep the Ten Commandments in deed or in motive. And so therefore, we must turn to God and say, God, I have broken your laws over and over and over again. And my only hope is to throw myself at your mercy. I believe in what your son did for me on the cross, that he lived the perfect life that I should have lived but didn't, and he died to pay the required penalty for my sin. He satisfied your wrath and justice over my breaking of the Ten Commandments, and through faith in him I can be forgiven and made right with you. That is the purpose of the Ten Commandments, and that's why even the Ten Commandments can be used in evangelism, Bill, because it's a schoolmaster to lead us to salvation in Jesus Christ. Yeah, amen to that. David, I love our time together. Thank you so much for teaching on Exodus. I look forward to next time, and thank you for talking a little tennis at the top of the uh, show. Always enjoy it, Bill. Thank you. You bet. David Wheaton has been my guest. You can go to thechristianworldview.org to learn more about David, and I encourage you to do so. He also has a wonderful show on weekends, and you can hear his podcast at thechristianworldview.org. All right. I'm excited to talk about heaven. Andrew Davis has written a book called The Glory Now Revealed, What We'll Discover About God in Heaven. It's all next.
So what actually happens in heaven? I think we've all been thinking about that for as long as we can remember, especially if we have loved ones that are there and we think, hmm, wonder what's going on up there. We all have questions. We all have longings. We all wonder about our future, whether it's our lives or the lives of our kids or certainly when it comes to heaven, we want to know more. So my guest is uh, Andrew Davis. He's written a book called The Glory Now Revealed. You may know him as Andrew Davis. I think of him as Andy. Andy, welcome to the show. Mm -hmm. It's great to be with you, Bill. Thank you. Uh, you know, this is a topic that people, frankly, can't get enough of. They love thinking about heaven. Uh, they want to know more. And I think most people, they want to know biblically more. Yeah, absolutely. I think we need to be filled with hope. Uh, I think it's it's impossible to live uh, live well, live a fruitful life without being energized by an expectation that the future is bright. And the Bible tells us that through faith in Christ, our, our future is indescribably bright, and mm-hmm. that just fills us with energy and power to do the things God wants us to do. So, Andy, we're, we're made in the image of God, and we all are kind of eager to think about the future and dream about the future and wonder about the future. That must be something that God instilled in us. Absolutely. And, and the Bible is given to help us realize what's coming and how, how wonderful and glorious our future in heaven is going to be. I think we are designed in the image of God to be forward-looking. And Paul himself said, forgetting what lies behind and straining toward what lies ahead. And he's even talking in that section of Philippians about pressing on toward heavenly perfection. And so, yeah, we're designed in the image of God to be forward-looking. Yeah. So, Andy, believers obviously got plenty to do in this life and on this earth, Mm -hmm. and God Mm -hmm. has a job for us all to do. And so we need to be busy getting um, as much done for the kingdom as we can, because that's, I think, an exciting thing that we have in this life. So Mm -hmm. should Christians spend much time thinking about heaven while they're still on earth? Absolutely. Uh, I think fundamentally, if we understand what heaven is all about, then it totally affects how we live our lives here on earth. Heaven is all about the glory of God. The book of Revelation, chapter 21, 22, reveals a world that is coming, and Revelation 21 speaks of New Jerusalem and says there's no need for the light of the sun or the moon or a lamp because the glory of God is going to give it light. It's going to, it's going to uh, radiate throughout that whole new universe. And the glory of God is the radiant display of God's attributes, uh, what God is like. And the more we immerse ourselves in, in comprehending what that's going to be like, the more exciting our lives here on earth become. So yes, I think God gave us uh, the scripture, gave us the final chapters of the Bible to fill us with that kind of radiant hope in heaven. Mm -hmm. Why do you think, uh, Andy, that so many people have developed just goofy or wrong beliefs about what heaven is going to be like? Because, you know, you don't have to to go very far except to read the the daily obituaries, and you read that somebody is on their favorite golf course in heaven right now, and I go, where'd you get that idea? (laughs) Yeah, something like that. And yeah. they also have near-death near death experiences that I think are, in many cases, some of them are fraudulent and later revealed to be fraudulent. But, but some of them are just real experiences that people have it as they uh, you know, are in extreme medical situations, near-death experiences, and they have visions. And, and, and I don't look on that as much more than dreams. I think they really have those things that happen. But I have no biblical warrant of saying that those are any source of information 
about heaven. No, our source of information uh, about heaven is from the Bible. And the Bible says more about the future world than we think it does. So the more we saturate our minds in biblical truth, the more solid our views of heaven are going to be. The Bible says that hope, in Romans chapter 5, it says hope does not disappoint Mm. because God has poured out his love into our hearts. The reason hope doesn't disappoint is that when we get to heaven, we'll find out the things we were hoping for actually come to pass. They actually were true. Well, the only way that's going to happen is if we study Scripture. Yeah, true, because otherwise we might spend time speculating. And it's yeah. uh, what problems do we run into if we speculate too much? Yeah, speculation is, uh, again, it's that, that dreaming. There's no basis of truth. Our, our, our Scripture, our, our life in Christ is based on truth. Jesus himself said, sanctify them in the truth. The wor- your word is truth. And he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. So there is a truth about the heavenly world that's coming, and that's revealed to us in Scripture and in no other place. We don't have a warrant from God to look anywhere else other than Scripture. So um, my desire is to find out what God has revealed through the apostles and prophets, through the writings in the Bible, and and then make it known. And that's what I sought to do in the book that I wrote. Mm-hmm. Andy Davis is my guest. His book is The Glory Now Revealed, What We'll Discover About God in Heaven. So, you know, Andy, I'm, um, I think of the, the, uh, the way in which we think about uh, our lives on earth and we get to heaven. Are, do you think we're going to have much memory of our lives on earth? Oh, absolutely. And, and I go beyond just, uh, you know, yes, I go beyond memory, though. I think we're going to learn things that happened in the past that we never knew. So memory would be things we did know, but but maybe we have forgotten, or maybe we haven't, but um, maybe enhanced knowledge. Uh, fundamentally, Bill, as I thought about it, basically we're either going to know everything about the past world that happened, some things about the past world that happened, or nothing about the past world that happened. Those are, those are our options. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I reasoned it through logically, and as I also looked at Scripture, it became evident that there's ample scriptural um, data that we will remember um, our earthly lives and, and the earthly history when we get to heaven. Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So that right there is a simple proof that we're going to remember at least the things Jesus said. But then when you look at all the things Jesus said, that's a gateway into all kinds of things that he revealed that we will remember. And so I came to the conclusion, the more I studied, we're going to remember or learn everything in the past. Nothing will be off limits. Mm -hmm. Which brings up an interesting point in my uh, 49cc brain right now, uh, is when we discuss our memory, uh, what about our our sinfulness that we had on earth? And once we are now glorified, redeemed in heaven... Mm -hmm. Uh, is that going to cross? That can't cross our minds, right? Oh, no, it will, but I don't believe that it will cause us any pain or shame. I think the time for pain and shame will be over because Revelation 21 4 says there'll be no more death, mourning, crying, or pain. No mourning, no crying, no pain. So, therefore, no shame. But I do, I do not think it's possible to rehearse human history, to go back over it without touching on human sinfulness. It's so woven into the fabric of what happened in this world. Uh, we are weak people, we're sinful people, um, and God used us um, in, in amazing ways, despite our weakness, despite, despite our sinfulness, He used us in amazing ways to give glory to God. All of the biblical heroes that we know anything about in the Bible, any, any significant amount, they all sinned, all of them, and we know about that in Scripture. And yet, I believe that when we get to heaven, that memory will cause us no shame, no pain 
whatever. We are going to be so decisively transformed from the sinners that we were in this world that we will have no fear of the story being told. And I also don't believe that God is is going to be in any way trying to shame us. It's just there's certain stories that have to be told a certain way, uh, like the con- conversion of Saul of Tarsus or David with Bathsheba. These yeah. are essential to essential to the story. I mean, and without it, it, we can't know the truth. Yeah, I mean, if you meet David in heaven, wouldn't you love mm-hmm. to have? Tell us, tell me about what it was like, what 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 you were yeah. thinking. I mean, but I suppose if you get into that conversation, and of course, this is an earthly brain trying to have an earthly idea, but. Yeah. In, in a heavenly environment, but yeah, I mean, there there was so much significant sin in that story. There is, and and aside from all that, because I, I understand this is a very valid question, and and it's it's important because there are scriptures that seem to indicate that God forgives our wickedness and remembers our sins no more. But I do not believe that that remembering our sins no more, or God forgetting our sins, is an absolute forgetfulness, because then God would no longer be omniscient. Yeah. Rather, what it means, it's like when it says that God remembered Abraham and rescued Lot, or God remembered his covenant with Israel. What he's saying is he's going to act in accordance with that covenant. He's going to call it forward into his actions and his activities. Therefore, God saying, I will forgive your wickedness and remember your sins no more, mm-hmm. means he will not act in accordance to our sinfulness. So I think instead, simply put, we cannot celebrate the grace of God, the lavish forgiveness and grace work for us by the blood of Christ if we don't remember the sins that needed to be covered and forgiven. Yeah, but we really don't want our sins brought up in heaven, ever. <laughs> no, uh, but but it's necessary It's necessary for the, for the backstory. So here's the thing. I think there's a narrative being told. The, the centerpiece of that is the glory of God in Christ. We will have no hesitation about that story being told. And in the end, God will, will be the triumphant actor in every human life, and we will be delighted to give him the glory. So I, I do argue for memory but no pain. I think mm-hmm. the alternative is just actually weird, that we would have no memory of the past. I don't know how then we would praise God for his mercy and grace in our lives, because we wouldn't know what what we did. We wouldn't know what forgiveness we needed. Mm-hmm. And I know we've touched on this a little bit, but I'd love to get back to it, because there has been a lot of surge in what I would call near-death experiences, and there's lots of stories yeah. and books and people on television, and I, I'd say there's been an increase in the last uh, 10 years, maybe. And is can we trust these near-death experiences for any glimpse of what they're telling us about heaven? Yeah, I think the best I can say about them is that they're real experiences that people have that have no warrant whatsoever, no biblical warrant, no, no warrant from God as a source of truth or information. Mm-hmm. They contradict each other. You can't weave them together into a cohesive narrative. They're just experiences people actually had. Like I liken them to dreams. So if I told you that I had a dream about heaven, you'd say, oh, tell me your dream. And it's like, oh, isn't that interesting? But you wouldn't go off and think that it's equal to Scripture. It's now a new source of information about what life will really be like. For that, we must go to the Bible. And that's what I'm arguing for here. Go to the Scripture and find out what he said. Mm -hmm. Andy, do you think an infinite God will be revealing his glory to us throughout all of eternity? Yes, I think Yes, I absolutely think that's only an infinite topic can fill up an infinite space of time, yeah, and that infinite yeah. topic is God. Yeah, because, you know, the thought is, uh, are you going to learn everything there is to know about heaven in the first 30 days you're there? You know, yeah, uh, no, you're, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> well, think of it this way. There's a single scripture. My, my PhD is in church history. I love history, all right? I believe that uh, much of this education will be 6,000 years of God's actions mm-hmm. in the past, 
And the Bible says with the Lord a day, a single day, is like a thousand years. That's how much happens in every moment of every day. And God is doing things. He's protecting us from demonic attack. He's guiding us providentially. He's orchestrating circumstance. We don't know a millionth of the part of what he's doing every moment. And then for God to show it to us, we'll be in awe, Bill. We're going to be on our faces again and again praising God as he goes back over what he did to save a multitude of people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. That story is going to be overwhelmingly glorious. Yeah. And then I think of the passage in John towards the end where it says, and I I, I wished I could find it super fast, but Mm -hmm. I can't, but um, I will paraphrase it. And that is if uh, there were books written for everything Mm -hmm. Jesus said, there's not enough room in the world to fill up the books. Yes. And I I think, yeah, here here it is. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. So oh, listen, that, that is so provocative. It, it says, yes, but heaven's big enough. That's what that's I, I mean. want to say at that yeah. point. Heaven's big enough. Yeah, and we're going to learn. Well, Bill, let me give you an example. John chapter 9 is an entire chapter on one miracle, the healing of a man born blind. The whole chapter is given to just aspects of that story. It's just what, how he healed him and then what happened afterwards. Jesus healed thousands of people. Mm-hmm. I would say tens of thousands, yeah. huge populations went out to <laughs> and healed them all. So, yeah, that's what John meant when he said the whole world couldn't contain the books. Yeah. What about the topic of the people that will, at the great white throne of judgment, be cast into the eternal lake of fire? Yeah. It's a, uh, it's probably the, the darkest day in heaven, right? It is, and it's an extremely uh, difficult topic. Um, but there are three, there are three painful uh, subjects that I had to cover concerning, you know, this retrospect or backward look at history, and that is our sins, which we've already talked about, our sufferings, those things that brought us immense pain in life, and then the damned, people that we knew and loved in life, but we know, we will know uh, that they didn't make it. We'll know that they're not there. And so I have to argue that they, that we will know, we will be aware of their condition, but we will not feel any pain about it at all. And mm. so the key to that meditation is, first of all, again, Revelation 21.4, no death, mourning, crying, or pain for the redeemed. They feel no pain. Then you've got the, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus that Jesus told about a rich man who lived selfishly and sub, uh, sumptuously and never gave a single thought to this poor man Lazarus at his gate. Who's, the dogs were licking his wounds. Both of them died. Um, Lazarus went to Abraham's side and the rich man went to torment. And then there's a subsequent conversation between the two. As you remember, Abraham and Lazarus look down on the rich man and the rich man's in torment and want some relief from his torment. And there's that whole conversation. If you look at that as a source of information about heaven and hell, we can see that the, the person in hell, the damned, remembers. Actually, Abraham tells him, remember hmm. your life. Remember how you lived. He knows that he has other brothers who are living like he, he lived, and he wants to warn them. Um, also, Abraham is aware of this man in torment and is in no way distressed about it, just feels that it's just and right what's happening. So that's a glimpse of what the future life in heaven will be like. Our present condition, we are designed. We are we must grieve over people who are on their way to hell. There is a brokenness. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Paul had great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart for unsaved Jewish people. So I believe that anguish over the damned is for now. It's for the present time, for people who haven't died yet. 
so that so that we who are saved will get involved in missions and evangelism and mm. win them while mm-hmm. there's time. It's not for eternity. We're not going to do that in eternity. Dr. Andrew Davis is my guest. His book is The Glory Now Revealed, What We'll Discover About God in Heaven. When we come back, I want to ask him about heaven and tears. That's all next. Dr. Andrew Davis. He's pastor and author. Um, of, he's also pastor of First Baptist Church of uh, Durham, North Carolina. Glad to have him on the show. Glad to meet him. He's written a book on a very simple topic, heaven. So uh, he's one of the questions I have for you, Andrew, is this, this idea of when in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 4, it says, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. It sounds like at some point there will be tears in heaven, huh? Well, I would look on that as an entry entry port. Uh, okay. Like I, I look on that as the final moment of Judgment Day. I believe in a difficult, a, a mixed. I would say a mixed experience for the redeemed on Judgment Day. It's a mixed experience because Second Corinthians five says that we must give an account for to the Lord for everything done in the body, whether good or bad. That's the mixed experience. We lived mixed lives. We did some good things and some bad things. We will not be condemned. We will not be judged. But we do have to give the Lord an account because we're stewards. And so when we give him an account, some of the accounting will be painful to us. Uh, we will suffer loss, Paul said, when the, when the wood, hay, and stubble burns up. We'll suffer loss. But then after that difficult accounting, judgment day, then he will wipe every tear from our eyes. Also, in the context, the, the people of God suffered greatly through the book of Revelation, suffered greatly. And that also could relate to him wiping tears. The time of suffering is over, and you're never going to grieve again. So, yeah, I think that, that that's the end of the old era. That's the end of Judgment Day and the end of all the suffering, and now you've stepped into a new world. Mm-hmm. When I think of heaven, Andy, I sometimes, you know, if you're at a funeral or a loved one passes, you, you always think of this expression, which is absence from the body is presence with the Lord, if they're a believer. Yes. Mm-hmm. So when you hear about he or she is in the presence of the Lord. Yeah. Where do you go? Where does your brain go? Well, uh, just to full disclosure, my book is not about what theologians call the intermediate state, which is what is going on right now. Of course. My book is about when all is said and done after the resurrection. Okay. So, um, but it's a valid question. I think there is a, it's almost like heaven light and hell light before the resurrection. There's a, there's a lesser experience of both. But then we get a greatly amplified experience of both heaven and hell after the resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. So I would say that absent from the body, present with the Lord is a truncated experience. It's a lesser experience because we were designed to have bodies, as proven by the fact in 1 Corinthians 15 says we will most certainly get resurrection bodies like Christ does. Mm -hmm. That whole chapter is about the resurrection of, of Christians, not about the Lord. The Lord is the pattern. We're going to also be raised. But in the meantime, that's what your question's about. In the meantime, if Christians die today and it's not the end of the world, 
um, they will be absent from the body and they'll go into the presence of the Lord and they will be, like Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. Mm-hmm. And so it is, it is an, you know, an infinitely greater experience of joy. Will Those individuals will never sin again, but they will not have their bodies. They're waiting for the resurrection. Mm-hmm. And so that's how I understand what happens to Christians now. Yeah. When I think of being a uh, born-again Christian and the presence of the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the living inside of me, um, I am in right now living with the presence of the Lord. Yes, you are. Am I and, not? But <laughs> yeah, you are. And and what's so amazing about that is the Holy Spirit in two places is called an arabon or a down payment, a deposit right. guaranteeing our full inheritance. So I think about it as in the in the idea of a minor, twelve uh, year old, let's say, whose billionaire parents die tragically, and the minor at age twelve will be well cared for by the estate, but he doesn't get his $2 billion until he becomes an adult. In the meantime, he gets stipend checks Mm -hmm. from the full inheritance, and the Holy Spirit gives us stipend checks or foretastes of heavenly joy in our prayer lives and in our obedience and our walk with Christ, and we have a sense of his love for us, but it's, it's a quantum leap forward when we're finally in his presence. When at last we see him face to face, like 1 Corinthians 13 says, now we see through a glass darkly, then face to face. Our experience now is good, but that experience will be infinitely glorious. So the Holy Spirit gives us a, a stipend check of heaven, but not the full amount. Mm-hmm. So what, what do you understand the biblical description of the physical new heaven, the new Jerusalem? Yeah. So the most information that we have about it is in Revelation 21 and 22. First mm-hmm. of all, we just need to understand it will be physical, because Jesus said, touch me and see a spirit or a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. So his resurrection body is a pattern of our resurrection bodies. We will be made like him. Therefore, we have to be somewhere. It's not Mm -hmm. some ethereal, you know, wispy place, some cloud place. It's a real place. And and it's called the new heaven and new earth, which I look on it as all one thing, kind of like Minneapolis, St. Paul, something like that. Mm -hmm. It's like all one, one thing. Um, And so heaven will descend, God's throne will descend and be on earth with us, and it will become heaven, and heaven will become earth. It will become one, fulfilling the Lord's prayer, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It will all become one. And so we're going to walk on the resurrected earth. I call it a resurrected earth. It's going to be glorified, but, but like the one we know now, just without any curse, and we'll explore it. Bill, we're going to see sites that we can't even imagine, but they'll, they're not like a sci-fi world, some weird thing. It's just this beautiful world that he's made, perfected with no curse. That's what we're going to explore and develop, I believe, and live in. Yes, please. <laughs> sounds good to me. It that really sounds does. wonderful, yeah. doesn't it? And, and don't you see, the more we meditate on this, the happier we get and the more yeah, energetic. Yeah, absolutely. And then we want we want our unsaved friends and relatives and co-workers to, to know it. It motivates missions. It motivates evangelism. Yes. It gives us energy. So that's why I wrote yeah. this book. So writing the book, The Glory Now Revealed, Andrew Davis is the author and my guest, What We'll Discover About God in Heaven. What was the one thing that you discovered that surprised you? That surprised me. All right. Well, the portal, the doorway in was the, was the concept that despite the fact that we will be glorified, we will never be omniscient. We're never going to be God. And that was the key to everything. Hmm. Then I realized 
we're not just talking about worshiping God. We're talking about learning God and then worshiping him, him showing us stuff we never knew. And that was electric for me. And the more I meditated on it, I was like, well, what is he going to teach us? And I would commend Psalm 111, 1 through 4, as like the key text for my whole book. Basically, it says that in heaven, the righteous will study forever the great works of God. They are wow. delighted by him and they, or, or by them, and they will study. The word literally says study forever the great works of God. That's Psalm 111, 1 through 4. So am I going to wish my study habits on earth were better? <laughs> uh, you will have no regrets in heaven. Oh, good. Um, good. Honestly, none. But I think the time for regret is now. Okay. I think when we, if we regret certain patterns of sin or laziness now, that's that's to get us ready for for heaven, so that we sh- we throw off sinful patterns, we throw off worldly thoughts, and we live better lives. And and in the end, we have a better experience in heaven because of it. I do believe that how we live on earth affects our experience in heaven. Mm -hmm. Just 30 seconds left, Andy. If they want to get a copy of your book, is the best way to do that? Yeah, so um, the publisher is Baker. uh, And so Baker Books um, has a website. Also, they distribute their books on Amazon and Christian book distributors and other outlets. So I also want to commend my own website, which is twojourneys.org, www.twojourneys.org, which has all of my writings and sermons for free. They're just available. Nice, nice. Uh, and when you say uh, two journeys, that's T... T-W-O. T-W-O, okay. Twojourneys.org. Yeah, really nice to meet you, Andy, and thank you so much for spending time with me today. I enjoyed it. Thanks so much. Yeah, you bet. Dr. Andy Davis has been my guest. His book is The Glory Now Revealed. What we'll discover about God in heaven. All right, coming up next, you know it's going to be. Thanks uh, for the listening. Old Programming series, like this Peter is Cap- made available through your support. Information available at myfaithradio.com.